The Vatican offers a clarification to their directives on blessings of couples in irregular unions. After many bishops' conferences, vow to resist. Editor of Catholic World News, Philip Lawler, weighs in. And comedian Rob Schneider talks about his new movie, Daddy-Daughter Trip, and his newfound Catholic faith. And on the anniversary of the passing of Pope Benedict XVI, an encore of my interview with his former personal secretary, Archbishop Georg Gonswain. The World Over begins right now. Now, Raymond Arroyo. Happy New Year and a warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. If you'd like to comment on tonight's show, send me a post, an ex post. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Let's get started. On December 18th, Pope Francis and the Vatican's doctrinal office issued a letter, Fiducia Supplicans. It allows priests to give blessings to same-sex couples and couples in irregular situations under certain circumstances. Now, bishops and bishops' conferences all over the world, including Africa, Peru, Brazil, Poland, Hungary, and Kazakhstan, have all issued statements of resistance or opposition to this document. And just this week, on January 4th, the Vatican's doctrinal office issued a further clarification of the document. Here, with analysis is the editor of Catholic World News and visiting fellow at New Hampshire's Thomas More College, Philip Lawler. Philip, thank you for being here. Before we get to the backlash to those blessings, I want to get your reaction to what the dicastery of uh, the, the doctrine of faith here, what their clarification actually says. It attempts to assuage the concerns of these bishops who have objected to the document. Um, in a press release, Cardinal Fernandez writes, quote, some bishops, for example, have established that each priest must carry out the work of discernment and that he may, however, perform those blessings or these blessings only in private. None of this is problematic if it is expressed with due respect for a text signed and approved by the Supreme Pontiff himself, while attempting in some way to accommodate the reflection contained in it. Each local bishop, by virtue of his ministry, always has the power of discernment, prudence, and attention to the ecclesial context and to the local culture could allow for different methods of application, but not a total or definitive denial of this path that is proposed to priests. Okay, that's what the document says. Now, Phil, after purposely cutting bishops out of any competency here, Fernandez is now trying to reintroduce the role of bishops, but not really. I mean, he says the power of discernment is something they have, but, quote, not a total or definitive denial of these blessings is within their power. What do you make of this? Well, it's a fascinating statement. You know, in the original statement released on December 18th, this same dicastery said there would be no more guidance on the particulars of the sort of blessings that were contemplated by the document. And now, less than three weeks later, we have a five-page press release giving clarifications of exactly what they said they wouldn't clarify. What this document mm -hmm. tells you is that there should be no confusion. Well, there is confusion. There should be no 
concern that this is somehow in conflict with per- permanent Catholic teaching. Well, there is that concern. The dicastery is insisting that there should be no confusion, but people are confused. They're clarifying, but it's still not clear. Uh, this is yeah. a classic case of of uh, piling on to the problem that they've already created. Yeah. Well, Phil, uh, you know, I loved weeks ago when we first reported this, when I had to break open my Christmas show and spend time talking about this, uh, we got some folks saying, you haven't read the document. You haven't read the document closely enough. That's not what it says. There's no doctrinal change here. Uh, You know, it's not even implied. Well, I guess the bishops of Africa, Poland, Kazakhstan, they haven't read the document either. I mean, the, the, the disconnect between reality and what this document opens the door to is just vexing to anybody with, with any sense of what's happened over the last few decades. But look, later in this um, doctrinal clarification, we find this. It says, quote, in order to avoid any doubt, the declaration adds that when a blessing is requested by a couple in an irregular situation, even though it is expressed outside the rights prescribed by the liturgical books, this blessing should never be imparted in concurrence with the ceremonies of a civil union and not even in connection with them, nor can it be performed with any clothing, gestures, or words that are proper to a wedding. The same applies to the, when the blessing is requested by a same-sex couple. It remains clear, therefore, that the blessing must not take place in a prominent place within a sacred building or in front of an altar, as this also would create confusion. Now, Phil, uh, if you've seen the cascade of photos coming yes. forward over the last few weeks, I mean, it's clear, you, you know, this idea that you can avoid any doubt by only giving the blessing in certain uh, settings or in certain dress is just being ignored. It is being ignored. And that is so predictable. Uh, the Vatican statement today insists, as did the original statement, that there is no change in church teaching. It re- repeats that. But there is a change in the message that's being conveyed. Uh, A blessing is a sign as well as as a blessing. Think of some child who sees a couple being blessed by a priest. He knows nothing uh, about what's gone on before that blessing. Doesn't he assume that that blessing conveys some sort of approval? Now, the dicastery is saying that what's particularly, what's a development in doctrine here is the idea that you can ask for a priest's blessing even if you're not in a perfect situation. Well, we all knew that. Anybody can ask for a priest's blessing at any time. But when you go to a priest with someone else and ask that priest to bless you as a couple or as a group, that has to be Mm. a implying some approval of the couple or the group. And if that group or that couple is based on uh, immoral behavior, what is the sign? What is the message? It's it's unmistakable. You can't blame it on the media. The media got this story right, frankly. This was an opening to approval, in a sense, not a wedding, but approval of same-sex unions. And that's why so many of the bishops from around the world, and particularly in the places where the church is growing fastest, uh, yeah. they see this as a problem, as a problem for evangelization, as a counter witness. Yeah. 
Well, even Fernandez's own uh, predecessor in Argentina has come out against this document. I mean, the, the, the fascinating thing here is all the, the people trying to explain this away and say, well, it's just a blessing as anyone would pursue a blessing. Well, fine. Uh, Phil, nobody has a problem with priests blessing any sinner. We're all sinners. So right. a, a, at the end of Mass, there's your general blessing. Go there. But the fact that you have to issue a document cordoning off a particular type of people and explicitly a couple, uh, it, it, it means something. There's a meaning behind it and an intentionality here. Now, an increasing sure. number of bishops and bishops' conferences have issued statements forbidding or objecting to these blessings in their dioceses, multiple bishops' conferences in Africa, Cameroon, Kenya, Malawi, Angola, uh, Burkina Faso, Niger, Kenya, Rwanda, Zambia, they have all announced that they will not honor fiducia supplicans, this document. Ditto for Poland and Kazakhstan and Hungary. For example, president of the Bishops' Conference of Cameroon, Bishop Andrew Nikia, wrote this, we formally forbid all blessing of homosexual couples in the Church of Cameroon. Rejecting it is in no way being discriminative. It is a legitimate protection of the constant values of humanity in the face of a vice that has become the subject of a claim to legal recognition, and today the subject of a blessing. And, uh, I mean, you see this internationally. This from the Bishops' Conference of Poland. Since practicing sexual acts outside of marriage, that is, outside the indissoluble union of a man and woman open to the transmission of life, is always an offense against the will and wisdom of God expressed in the Sixth Commandment. People who are in such a relationship cannot receive a blessing. This applies in particular to people in same-sex relationships. Phil, I mean, this growing resistance started immediately after the release of this Vatican Declaration, and it quickly uh, spurred this supposed clarification. Now Fernandez says none of this is doctrinal opposition. What is it then? What are we seeing from these bishops? They think it's the doctrinal opposition. Uh, Cardinal Fernandez says it can't be in the same sense that he says they can't be confused. Well, they are confused. And insofar as they aren't confused, they see this as in conflict with Catholic doctrine. And just by the way, let's bear in mind that just two years ago, this same office, the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith, issued a statement on the question of can the church offer offer blessings to same-sex unions. And that statement was pretty clear. It said no. Mm -hmm. But, Phil, uh, you you see Fernandez in this document going into pretzels, trying to say, well, this is in continuity with that statement. Because, yes, we can't bless the sin, but we're blessing the individuals yearning for a better way forward. That's basically what he says here. And then he tries to distinguish between— liturgical blessing and what he calls personal or pastoral blessings. Is there really a difference here? Oh, I think there is a difference between a liturgical blessing, such as what you would see at a marriage, uh, a Christian marriage, and a spontaneous blessing where you ask a priest on the sidewalk if he can bless you. That's that's a legitimate difference. But uh, to make a big deal of it, to say that's a doctrinal development and to encourage it. You see, I mean, you are encouraging people to seek a blessing on a union that the church cannot view with approval. So it may be not liturgical. It's not 
or ritual. It's not part of a, a sacramental uh, event, but it is, I don't see how you can say it's not an expression of approval. And you have the bishops of the Eastern Catholic Church is pointing out that in the Byzantine tradition, it's very clear that whenever a priest gives a blessing, that is an indication of approval. So you are approving of these couples and the basis of their relationship. I I just don't see a way around that. And uh, as you say, Cardinal Fernandez is uh, twisting himself into pretzels, but it, it, it's really not that difficult. Do you see this resistance growing? Will more bishops join this chorus? And are we witnessing a slow rolling schism here? I mean, uh, you know, Fernandez's pleadings that this changes nothing and only affirms traditional Catholic teaching on marriage and family. Does that quell this uprising? It can't. It just can't. Because, look, if you tell me, oh, Phil, you shouldn't be upset and I'm still upset and you keep telling me not to be upset, you're not listening. For all the church, uh, for all the discussion that we've heard about synodality, this is an indication of bishops around the world telling the Vatican, telling the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith, this is sending the wrong message, and the Vatican is not listening. And that's a really important development. That's this uh, reaction to this Vatican document is something that I have not seen in all the years that I've covered Catholic affairs, going on 40 years now, this this is unprecedented mm-hmm. to have a significant proportion of the bish- of bishops from around the world and Episcopal conferences saying, no, this statement from the Vatican can't stand. There's a real yeah. pressure to roll it back, and, and I hope the Vatican will stop listening soon. Yeah, no, it's it's very curious, particularly in this age of a synodal church, which was all about listening. And the bishops were totally cut out of this. This wasn't brought up at the synod. This wasn't part of the, uh, you know, debate or discussion at the synod. It was an an ad hoc uh, separate bit of action by the pope near the end of the year, in the middle of the Advent season. And the other thing here that we shouldn't glissade over, Phil, Uh, Not only is there this titanic reaction, the likes of which I've never seen either. And when you talk to some of these bishops, they felt they had to come forward because it is the heart of the faith. And in Africa, they're being challenged by Islamics and other faith traditions about their fidelity to marriage. So this is critical for evangelizing and holding on to the church and the faith in those countries. Um, In a somewhat related story, uh, there was a USA Today report that Uh, African priests are coming to the U.S. to help relieve the priest shortage here. Given the traditional nature of the church in Africa, how how might their ministry affect what we're seeing in the U.S. church and its reaction to this document? That's a really good question, and I'll have to wait and see. I don't know enough about the priests who are coming from Africa. It is a fascinating development, isn't it, to have uh, Mm -hmm. the countries that were once mission territory now sending missionaries to the countries that were once uh, sending missionaries to them. And uh, it's, I mean, it's a beautiful thing about the faith to see what, how that will work. I am hopeful Mm -hmm that they will bring the the vivacity of the African church to the West, where we're really suffering from a lack of energy. And it could very well be that their traditional views on 
issues such as marriage and sexuality will have a, a beneficial effect on our countries and the mm. church in our countries. Phil, I want to play something uh, for you. This is from my discussion uh, with Robert Royal a few weeks back concerning the German synodal way and this same-sex blessings permitted by this document. Th- then we'll get your reaction. Watch. Does this bar the German bishops and others who've already created these formalized blessings of same-sex couples, Bob, or does it encourage them to go further? Some of them are already saying this is a small, big step. Yeah, some people have made the argument that this document is actually intended to prevent the the Germans and the Belgians who have been developing Mm -hmm. formal rituals of of same-sex blessings from doing so. But for me, the tip-off in this is that those more progressive elements in the church have no objections to the fact that there are limitations for now about what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, Phil, your thoughts, isn't the synodal, German synodal way rather, really a forerunner to so much of what we see coming out of the Vatican now, despite the recent vocal corrections from Pope Francis? Yes, and uh, I completely agree uh, with Robert Royal there that this is, uh, it's telling that the German bishops who are pushing this synodal path and pushing for blessings of same-sex unions are not troubled by the restrictions that are here on paper. We've seen how this works before in the church. We've seen how the Vatican will say something is not licit and progressive, the so-called progressive Catholics will do it anyway until finally it's adopted everywhere. Communion in the hand, altar girls. We've seen how this works. Uh, The German bishops and other progressives, Father James Martin and others, will push the envelope on this. It's predictable. And by the way, uh, you cannot convince me that part of the reasoning for putting out this document, the original directive, was to put, put on the brakes on the German bishops by saying that they could not um, they could not authorize these blessings for same-sex unions because, again, just a few years ago, just two years ago, the same dicastery gave a very clear answer to that question, and the answer was no. So that's the status quo ante. You can't convince me that they had to say no now in a document so rife with confusing messages and, and doublespeak. Yeah, no, they're trying to have it both ways with this document, but it clearly opens a door. I mean, everybody got that right, You, as you said earlier. Uh, before we run out of time, a priest in the Italian diocese of Livorno was excommunicated at the top of the year by his local bishop for calling Pope Francis, quote, a usurper in his New Year's Eve homily, marking the anniversary of Benedict XVI's death. Philip, what do you make of the lightning speed action taken here particularly given the slow pace of other Vatican disciplinary actions, especially about notorious figures like uh, Rupnik and others? Well, I think that there is a bishop who is uh, in Livorno who is very anxious to stay on the good side of the Pope. He made the point that this bishop, uh, I'm sorry, this priest who called the Pope a usurper, had brought upon himself the sentence of excommunication latte sententiae, that is, automatically mm-hmm. by uh, right. an act of schism. 
Well, yes, but to make it official, the bishop has to announce that the man is excommunicated. And as you say, he did announce that with lightning speed within about 32 uh, 72 hours. That's just not the way these things usually work. I have to assume that this is a bishop who recognizes that Pope Francis at this stage in the pontificate is quite ready to reward his friends and punish his perceived enemies. Hmm. I want to get your take finally on a meeting with uh, Raymond Cardinal Burke and the Pope. This happened on December 29th, uh, presumably about the Pope's decision to remove Burke's salary and his pension and his living privileges in a Vatican apartment. Now, uh, there have been no details about this meeting from either party. Your thoughts on what this, I guess, photo op was designed to create? My guess is that uh, Cardinal Burke wanted to meet with the Pope to speak with him, which he's been wanting to do for several years now without success. Seven. But but Cardinal Burke uh, wanted to make this happen before he left Rome, uh, which I think he, he would not be at all unhappy to do. My understanding is he would be happy to live in retirement in Wisconsin. Uh, But, of course, we don't know anything about the conversation that took place. It's curious that the Pope allowed it only now after the punishment had been uh, put in place. And again, there's this tremendous double standard between the punishments meted out to Cardinal Burke because he's perceived as a rival or critic of the Pope and the punishments that are not uh, not given to uh, Rupnik, who is convicted of multiple counts of abuse. So Mm -hmm. again, the Pope rewards his friends and punishes those he perceives as his enemies. Phil Lawler, we will leave it there. Catholic World News editor Phil Lawler's reporting and commentary can be found at catholicculture.org. Thank you, Phil. Thank you. He's a stand-up comic, a star of countless comedies, and a former writer and cast member on Saturday Night Live. His latest film, Daddy Daughter Trip, which he also directed, is out now on Amazon Prime. He's here to talk about his new film and his Catholic faith. Here's my exclusive interview with Rob Schneider. Rob, thank you so much for being with us. Um, Thank you. Tell me a little about this new family film. I mean, this is literally a family film, Daddy Daughter Trip. You direct it and star with your real life daughter, Miranda, and with cameos by your two girls. What were the origins of this project? Well, I wanted to make a movie that um, had that Italian feel to it, you know, where mm. it was just a, a family like, you know, I like I love those movies, Cinema Paradiso and Il Postino, uh, you know, a movie that can make you laugh and cry where you as a family that has nothing is just trying to get the best experience for their for their daughter. And, um, huh. you know, going on a road trip with no money just sounded like a, a good idea, you know, for a movie. Hmm. I want to give folks a little taste of the movie. Here's the trailer, and then I want to talk about this when we come back. Champagne, madam? Let me open it. Go for it. (laughs) Go! Spring Will it help? I'm not touching you. I got this. 
As you mentioned, Rob, family is important to you, not only in your film, but really in, in, in the many roles you've, you've taken over the years. And it seems like Adam Sandler and Chris Rock and Dave Spade, your relationship with those gentlemen is also like an extended family. Why do you love working with those guys so much? I know you've been on the road with Adam. Well, I mean, it's fun. It's more fun now than ever. I mean, we're all, you know, they're all in their 50s. I just turned 60. I mean, at this point in your career, you know, it's uh, if you haven't accomplished what you needed to accomplish now, there's no reason for any zero competition or anything. You know, we've all had success. <laughs> uh, and it's nice to kind of look back and have decades of work together. And that's um, mm. that's really special. And that really comes from Adam Sandler because he's um the workhorse behind so many of the things we've done. Uh, and there's a testament mm -hmm. to how much uh, he loves his family and his extended family. Uh, it's, uh, mm -hmm. and also you kind of, there's a trust. And, and whenever you're making a project that um, has a lot of people in it, you really need to have the trust that uh, for somebody who you don't have to explain everything to, <laughs> they'll just right. know and uh, commit to it. And and have fun with it and have fun with you, because at the end of the day, that's it. You want to be able to uh, be on a set. If you're trying to make a comedy, especially you really want to uh, get people to laugh. And I think they're in, I think the audience can intrinsically tell if people are having fun mm. or not. Yeah. And Adam's wife plays your wife in the movie, doesn't she? Yeah, she's terrific. You know, and um, she she loves working and, uh, and and she's a really good actress. And uh, I really wanted to to have that family feel and somebody that I felt really comfortable with. And she did mm -hmm. Jackie's family was terrific in the film. And it's a nice, it's got a good, uh, you know, a really good uh, moral to the film, uh, which is just, you know, hanging on to your dreams. And if, even if they seem, if, if it's impossible and if you're doing it for your kids, you know, that's, it is possible. No, no, Rob, watching it, you know, it's sweet. It's hilarious. Uh, what do you hope viewers take from Daddy Daughter Trip? And what do you find the audience hungering for, given the current cultural climate and the offerings? Um, that there's zero politics in this movie. It's just about a family. It, this movie could have been made in the 70s, 80s or 90s mm -hmm. or the early 2000s, because it's just about a family that has nothing that is... Um, uh, trying to figure out a way uh, to kind of, in a way, keep up with the Joneses. But the the truth of the matter is, if, if there's a family that has love in it, then it's uh, it really isn't about um, what you can give them or what it's what you try to give them and give them the best that you can. And that, that's what it, that, yeah. that was a nice um, uh, the center of this movie is about that. You know, it's it's tough out there yeah. because especially these days because you can. You know, when I was a kid, I mean, there was no uh, Internet. So we, we didn't have access to see, like, what people had so much more than what we had, you know. So now um, yeah. the pressures on kids uh, when they, you know, when we used to go home, the pressure would be over, the social school pressure. Now it just continues on your phone. So I, I think it's oh, really rough great point. for kids to yeah. have to deal with that kind of pressure. And so uh, this is about mm. a little girl. It's embarrassed because she doesn't. Her parents again don't have any money to take them on a trip, for, you know, for like a little spring break trip or something. So she lies and says she's going to go to all these amazing places. The dad finds out and he said, "Well, I'll take her anyway." 
And he just has like, you know, <laughs> just coins in his pocket. And it's nice. People really respond well to the film and, and uh, they can relate to that because and at the end of the day, everybody wants to do something for their kids. And, and, uh, mm-hmm. and then there's the reality of what you really can do. Well, and, you, and what, what I took from the movie when I watched it, it really is about no matter where you take them, no matter what you give them, giving them yourself is really the greatest gift you can you can offer your kids. That's beautiful. I really like that interpretation because I really feel like the best scene in the movie to me isn't isn't any of the wonderful trips or the places that they go. It's when they're in a car looking at the stars saying, I love yeah. you all that star and back. A thousand times. That's the thing. Because this, because my daughter and I practiced that for nine months before we did the scene, wow. uh, just the different variations of it. And I said, just see what happens that night, and uh, don't worry about it. Just forget about the cameras now. So mm. she was eight, and it was really important to um, uh, not make her feel like it was work. So we never called yeah. action. We never called action. We oh. just kind of we just did this. Slid and into then, it. Wow. Yeah, that way you really feel like, you know, that's what's beautiful about the kids. I and mean, it's beautiful to see kids in movies, isn't it? Yeah. It's so nice to Their see. Their innocence and, is there. And, and and it's natural. Yeah. And we have uh, um, the scenes between the two kids are really beautiful. And there's a really nice scene in there because um, after my dad passed away, I remember my mother said um, – she used to have this little, little, my dad used to have this little pillow that he would sleep with. And my mom had, and I remember her going, uh, you still, you're keeping that? And she just kind of, you know, embarrassingly said to me, it doesn't smell like him anymore. And I was like, ah, I mm. broke my heart. And so I put that mm. in the movie, the little boy who lost his mother. And um, Yeah, I remember that moment. And it's, yeah, uh, it's a beautiful line. So now I, we know. know. I, I, now we know where you got it. I love that. <laughs> no, it's such a sweet moment in the movie. Christmas is right around the corner, Rob. Before we run out of time, I, I want to talk a second about your faith. I mean, you talked about your mother. Your mother was Catholic. Your father was Jewish. And you recently made headlines by announcing that you had converted or reverted to Catholicism. You, you once yes. said um, that you strayed from the church, but Jesus Christ never strayed from you. What was the occasion of your return to faith? Was it one a moment or a, or a time? It's, I think um, I think it was it was several things. It was one of it was seeing um, the obvious darkness that's coming on the world now. I think it, it comes every hundred years or so, and it's approaching now. And I think you saw some of the organized evil. I don't know how else to say it during COVID and the coercions and the mm. uh, the shutdowns and things that were just obviously bad and bad people doing it. But the the thing that um, that really awakened me to it was to to not be fearful and to um, we were working on this beautiful script about a um, the shroud of Turin and um, huh. the the Egyptian linen burial cloth of Jesus Christ and yeah. it was uh, the, the the last draft that I had written on it's about this uh, this true story about this woman from Cincinnati and. Um, this man who was a Benedictine priest, uh, Joe Marino, and uh, they mm. fell in love. And and they they she did prove that this cloth, when they did the carbon dating testing, that the French nuns who repaired this, can you imagine the nuns knowing that this is the burial cloth of Jesus Christ, mm. their Lord, the, how delicate and how they would make this thing that the French call an invisible weave. 
And so when they tested and did the carbon dating, they didn't put into uh, their uh, calculation this newer 16th century uh, threads, which threw the carbon right. dating off. And then when you think about the uh, – it's an inverse, and they, they, they've tried to dismiss this as a – a mid uh, medieval relic when in fact it's uh you know they would have had to be someone in the middle 500 years ago thinking about photography and that that would be invented and this would be a reverse this would be a negative someone would have to make a positive of it it's only on the top 16th fiber of this and uh everything that is talked about in the bible all the and the the blood that is on that cloth um, it's everything that was described from what Christ suffered on the cross. And I really, it gave me a, an awakening to this thing, which really what that cloth is, is a receipt of the sacrifice mm. that, God, that Jesus Christ gave uh, for the greatest gift to mankind, which is that ultimate of forgiveness. And um, mm. so, and it really did awaken me. And I couldn't, you know, when you, you just can't ignore it anymore. You can't yeah. try through your life and say, well, that's not real. This doesn't exist. And this is, you know, the atheists believe that this is, you know, somehow they cling to this idea that there's everything in the universe is just an accident and our intelligence and our empathy and our compassion is just this weird freak accident. Well, we're, we're not. And um, it comes from God. And, and I, I really believe that once you have children, they need to have a foundation and a faith and something that, mm. um, is bigger than them that connects them to everything. And if you look at the the societies that don't have that, whether it was the former Soviet Union, you see a, a hopelessness. And I really yeah. think at this time, as we enter this new age, whatever's going to happen, uh, don't go through it fearfully, but go through it with faith and go through it that uh, it's preordained. And uh, well, as far as Rob, a, a friend of mine commented when they saw that you had converted to the faith. Uh, they they mentioned something that I've seen in all of your work. You have always had that joyful sparkle that only really comes from, um, I think, a grounding in faith. You, you, you see that um, those glints of it in all of your work. And it awesome. is a it, look, that's the mark of I mean, it's the mark. Of, it's a mark of the faith joy. And you can't manufacture that. And let's face it. You and I know a lot of comedians who are not the most joyful people <laughs> on the planet. You don't have that problem. Is that a component? Did that? Do you find it now bleeding into your work in ways you never imagined? I'll leave it there well, before we go. I don't. I don't know where this will lead me. I don't know what work I'll be able to do, or or, or what what work I feel comfortable doing from here on out. Um, but I, I think again, it's just an openness. I mean, the difference between faith and belief. Belief coming from the angle, leaf coming from the Anglo word. Uh, it's will, willfulness. It's the people who have mm -hmm. a strict fundamentalist form of thinking, whereas faith is an openness to the truth, whatever that is. So I think as I proceed to whatever's going to happen for, for me now is um, I just want to have an openness to, you know, whatever God has planned for me and, you know, to take care of me and my family. And I feel pretty comfortable with with uh, <laughs> with this and I feel at peace. And that's the most important thing. And I think that's what faith can mm. bring you. Is peace. You bet. Well, Rob, Merry Christmas to you and your family. Thank you for bringing us peace, laughs, and joy. And Daddy Daughter Trip, directed by Rob Schneider, starring he and his family, is available to rent now on Amazon Prime and Apple All TV. Right. Merry Christmas, Rob. Merry Christmas. Thank you, Raymond.
Daddy-Daughter Trip, directed by and starring Rob Schneider, is available to rent now on Amazon Prime and Apple TV. Pope Benedict XVI passed away a year ago on December 31st of 2022. My next guest served as personal secretary to Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger and then to Benedict XVI until his death in 2022. He's the author of Who Believes Is Not Alone? My Life Beside Benedict XVI. I sat down with him last November in New York City to discuss the book and his life with the late pontiff. Here's my encore of the exclusive interview with Archbishop Georg Gonswain. Archbishop, thank you for coming. Thank you for sitting down the interview. It's great to see you again. Tell me, in your new book, Who Believes Is Not Alone? Uh, you give such penetrating insight into really not only the last years of Pope Benedict, but really your entire life with him, which, which covers, what, more than 20 years. I want to go to something more contemporary, the Synod on Synodality, which we just saw the first phase of. Pope Benedict was around when this was announced. Did he have any insights or concerns about this particular form of the Synod of Bishops? Do you recall? There is a very simple answer. He didn't command that. He read it, but he didn't command it. And I have not asked him. I cannot say why, but I said to, me, to myself, if he is silent about that, he will not be asked. And there was no question, no answer. Finito. Hmm. And, and, and that's how he really, is that how he absorbed, if you will, um, Pope Francis's papacy? He just sort of observed it without getting directly involved or commenting. That's right, that's right. After his resignation, he said, I'm not more Pope, I'm the Papa Emerito. The Pope is Francis. He is the successor of Peter, actually successor, and he has the responsibility to guide the Church and not me more. And all the time, all the ten years, this was his navigation. Mm. It was his clear game and mm. okay. I want to talk later about his prayer life, about the personal side of him we didn't see. But I, I want to take you back. You opened the book in February of 2003. Now you were working then with Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger at the Doctrine of Faith. That's where I first met you. What happens during that coffee break in February of 2003 and why? I came to the Doctrine of the Faith in 95, and Colonel Ratzinger was convinced when he will ask Pope John Paul II, I am here more than 20 years. I'm an old man, I'm tired, I will resign. He told, he's, has written, and he was there was no answer, not yet, because he came 82, yes. and uh, normally a prefect is uh, nominated for five years, another five years, mm -hmm. another five years, another five years, 20 years, 
and he said he was convinced John Paul II will this time he will will accept accept. Okay, that because he had tried to resign multiple times. He told me that in 2003. Yes, yes, that's right. That's right. And so he, there are the letters from him to the Pope and from the Pope to him. The answers. And then he said in 2002, I the first time I will write another one, another uh, time. And then he must say, okay, I accept. And he was convinced that he will be at most three, four months a prefect. Mm. But his former secretary uh, became an undersecretary uh, of another congregation. Joseph Clemens. Yes. And I need a private secretary. And we two, she said, me, the cardinal, and me, uh, he's spoken in Italian, Don Giorgio. Mm -hmm. We will be, I don't know the precise word in English, in Italian, it's provisorio. Provisional. He is a provisional. And me. Uh-huh. Because and he then, thought he was going to retire. Yes. And then I retire, and he will go back to the old rule. Three months. There are 20 years. Because there was no answer from Pope John Paul II. Month by month. And in April 2005, Pope... John Paul died. The conclave, and from the Cardinal Ratzinger, what went out? Benedict XVI. And you got drafted into yes, becoming that was the Pope's secretary. Yeah, that was secretary. The, 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 the difference was not more living in the, uh, in the Holy Office and working, but in the Apostolic Palace. Mm-hmm. That's all. And that was in February to. 2003, he was convinced the answer will come. But the answer. Well, you write in the book that this retirement, and I've seen this not only in my interview, throughout his life, retirement, this quest for retirement. He wanted to retire to Bavaria with his brother. They were going to live in a little chalet and write and play music together. He sort of had this vision in his head. But you say in the book it was a constant theme that was always out of reach. Why do you think he wanted to retire so desperately? Well, I think, and I've seen he was 70, he has seven, had 78 years. 78. Yeah. So 77, and his birthday uh, is April nine, uh, 16. Yeah. And April 19, he was elected Pope three days after his birthday. Yeah. Now, one thing for him was very, very important to write or to finish a book about Jesus Christ. Like a a witness about his personal scientific uh, life about a priest, about a bishop and also cardinal with all the experiences, the personal experiences. And therefore he said, okay, that's my, my future and I have time and I will finish that book. And I remember very well then, in April he was elected. And then, above two or three months later, because in that time, that three months, he didn't speak about the book. No word. Because he was convinced 
it's over. He won't be able to do it. It's not, it's not more possible. Being a pope, I have to do others. And in, Ju in June, I asked me, can you make a copy of this article? Oh, why not? And then, well, for me, it was the first time that that desire to continue was reborn. And that became the Jesus of Nazareth. Tell me about the historic resignation. Okay, here we are, February 2013. It shocked the world. But you knew about this, Archbishop. You had indications of this much earlier. How did you come to know that Pope Benedict intended to resign? And in the book you indicate that you tried to talk him out of it. Yes, How? That's right. We have been, it was September 2012. Normally the, the Pope or the Popes have been from the 1st of July or after John Paul II, he liked to go first in the mountain mm -hmm. and then till October, Castle Gandolfo. Normally, August was a, a free month. Only the general, the general audiences and the Angelus Domini. Right, on uh, Sundays. Okay, Sundays. Mm -hmm. I've seen, in, in, after it was in March and April, he went to Mexico and to Cuba. He went back, was very tired. Very, very, very tired. And then he slept step by step till July. And in these days, from July to August, he was like exhausted. Hmm. Because in these days, or in these days, he finished the third, the small Jesus from Nazareth. And I thought he was all the strength, all what are in reserve, put down yeah. and put in. He expanded himself yes, writing that yes. book. And then in September, he said to me, normally I was with, by him uh, well, the 11 o'clock with the correspondence and then in the afternoon another time, two times a, a day. And he said to me, this evening came earlier. Please come here. Okay. okay. And normally he sit down, he was sitting on the chair, on the uh, table, and I was up uh, the And that said, no, take also you a chair. The first time in eight years. I won't. Okay, and then I have to tell you something. I'm old. I'm. I have no more strength. I reflected. I have reflected. I have prayed. I have struggled with myself. And I have come to the conviction not only that I have to resign from papacy. By love of Jesus and the church. And I said, Holy Father, it's impossible. 
No, that's impossible. Far away. You can delegate this, this, this. I've spoken like a fighter about five minutes. He was still mm. silent. And then he said to me, excuse me, I have not said something to discuss. It's not, it's not more necessary. I have told you my decision. Mm. Oh, it was, it was that, in that moment I was, I was, I do not know, but it, it, it was heavy. Yeah. And that was the first, and, and, and then he thought, you will be one of the three persons who knows that. And please, you have now be under the pontifical secret. Wow. That was the first time a me, uh, month ago. But did he consider the consequences of that? The, or, or I've read some reports where he assumed his protege, Angelo Scolda, was going to succeed him, or someone like him. Was that the thinking? I, I, I feel that was the thinking. Someone will come and to convince it's not possible, like me. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't hear it. No. Mm. I cannot say why, but he said, no, it's, 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 I cannot more. And I think, and that all the years uh, after, when he was a resigned Pope or Pope Emeritus, he never had a doubt that was the right decision. Was it, you've seen all the reportage. It was Vatty Leaks, it was... No, 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 uh, yes. Yeah. You, you don't, that has no, 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 no. That is, he said sometimes to me, my, there is no, there is no, there is no reason in all the things that are, went wrong. Mm. Vatty Leaks or homosexual uh, groups mm. or there, sometimes there was, in, in, uh, it was not real. Mm. And in another way, he said, I can go now because there is no danger of the church. If there is a wolf mm -hmm. coming and the, the shepherd cannot go, but if there is no wolf, there is no danger, I can. Mm -hmm. And the Lord will preserve and the Lord, the Lord will guide his church with another successor of, people, mm -hmm. uh, of Peter. Did he regret it? Ma never. How do you see those 10 years? And how, I mean, I know he was praying. I know he was writing. I know he was suffering. Tell me about that time. The, the first two months, there was he was exhausted. He was uh, very tired. He has spoken very, very uh, little. Hmm. And then? After they come back to Rome, after May, 2nd May, I remember very well, more and more the strength came back. Wow. And there was, uh, he is a very uh, systematic man. No? Yes. Holy Mass, bravery, then the, the breakfast, uh, rest, then bravery, then correspondence, lecture, music, bravery, and then lunch. 
after lunch, a small, a small uh, walk. They had, had a very... T- uh, the gardens? Gardens. No, after, the, after lunch, we have been on our terrace in, uh, in the monastery. Uh-huh. And rest, and then in the afternoon, the first was uh, the bravery, and then we went out to pray the rosary. Back correspondence, and there are, in the first year, at the end of the morning and at, uh, in the late uh, afternoon, uh, there have been guests. Many, many uh, oh, asked, yeah. oh. And then uh, dinner, small dinner, and then he retired. And that's many, many years. Of course, he... he he did not. He did not write. He answered m- the correspondence. Uh-huh. But there were a few occasions mm-hmm. where he was asked to say something, right? To write something, and also to help something. Mm. And normally he could not say no, mm. and he would not say no. I, I want to talk about Samorum Pontificum, which is one of the hallmarks of Benedict's legacy, of course. His focus was always on the reform of the reform of the liturgy. That was always his, really his life's work. And whether it was the translations in the Novus Ordo around the world or permitting greater freedom for the old Latin rite. And I'll read from Samorum Pontificum. He said it was always clear, uh, or you write this, it was always clear in Ratzinger's mind that there was only one rite, subsisting in the coexistence of an ordinary and extraordinary form. The one intention of his motto proprio was to repair the gaping wound that had formed over time, be it voluntary or involuntary. Now, what were the Pope's thoughts after he saw that motto proprio play out? Was he pleased with the the way it was received at the time? In that time, Pope Benedict has been very weak, physically. Physically. And normally, he asked me to, to read something he would read, and he was there on the paper, on the table, and I'm here, and I have read from the Osservatore Romano the text, because the only, the only text was published in, the, in that time in the Osservatore Romano, I read and read, there was the motu proprio and also the, the, the letter of Pope Francis. You're talking about Custodis? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. so, yeah, so yeah. the motu proprio, so I was talking about his motu proprio and how it was received, oh. how Benedict was received. Oh, no, but now the, you're talking about oh. when Pope Francis yes. basically clamped down yes, on, yes. The, on the oh. Latin rite and okay. demolished that motu proprio. About the, his motu proprio, the mm-hmm. Benedict, no? Yeah was uh, allowed to have a liberal, liberal, liber... You're right. Liber, it was a liberalization yeah. of the old right. Because what that two intentions. The first, that the liturgy is the way to connect with God. And it's impossible that the liturgy, that was the liturgy for 500 years, many saints and will be forbidden. Or it's not more allowed. And the first step in that direction is made John Paul II. Yeah? 
Yes. That's the first. With Ecclesia Dei, with where they, Dei. they allowed it in certain okay. instances yes, with the permission of the and bishop. In the year after, Cardinal, Benedict, Cardinal Ratzinger and also Pope Benedict have seen that's good, but it's too... There are many, not, I do not know of many, but there are bishops that did not agree, and that's not good. And therefore he gave more and more, more liberty. Mm-hmm. And let the priests decide whether of they course, wanted to celebrate the old rite or and not. And the second was, liturgy is so important that it cannot be forbidden by means or by motives or by reasons. They're not clear. Mm. And therefore, he said, we will, oh, I will open and that must be, must lead to the peace in the, in the church regarding liturgy. And also mm-hmm. including then uh, Pius XII. Right. Yeah. And it worked. It worked. It brought peace. Yes. What did you learn from him in those last days, in that last period? I mean, when you're with someone, particularly someone with a deep faith life, when you see them at the end of their life, going through the struggles that we all will go through. Yeah. What did you learn from him? What did you take from that? Moment? Two things. The first thing, he was, what he t- teached, he lived. And he lived that also in the last month and weeks and days, getting more and more down. Weak. Weak. The second there is no reason to not remain a faithful Catholic because it's the direct way to the heaven. Who Believes is Not Alone, My Life Beside Benedict XVI by Archbishop Georg Ganswein is available now at bookstores everywhere and online, including the EWTN catalog at EWTNRC.com. Before we go, some sad news to report. A longtime and very dear member of the EWTN family, Lee South, passed away suddenly this week after a short illness at the age of 77. She was the mother of three, grandmother of four, and beloved by so many of us. Lee was a close friend to our family, godmother to my daughter. She was like a mother to many of us at EWTN. And Lee worked closely with uh, Doug Keck, as producer of his bookmark show, uh, she was also part of the EWTN family for nearly 30 years. The loss of Lee is devastating to all of us, and we ask you to keep the South family in your prayers. We'll miss you terribly, Lee. The consolation is she's finally reunited with her beloved husband, Ned South, who passed away in 2006. Rest in peace, dear Lee. I'll miss your reviews and your notes after the show. That's all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, I thank you for watching. Happy New Year. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.